welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, helping aspiring investors get to grips with the world of finance and investing. This week, in the second of our New Year programmes, we look ahead, this time to the longer-term trends that will shape our investing future. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. And welcome to the programme. Did you have a good week, Marcus? I did, I did. I think, um, probably like a lot of people, I've been glued to the US political drama and the historic second impeachment of Trump. Um, uh, can't say I see that as a bad thing. How about yourself, Simon? Uh, well, matters of less international significance, it has to be said. I've been digging out details of one of my old employer pensions, just giving it a review, uh, seeing where it's got to, and uh, really seeing where it's invested and whether I need to make any changes or not. So, uh, yeah, not quite uh, not quite as weighty a matter anyway. Exciting. <laughs> well, let's, let's uh, move on and look at some weighty matters, and let's have a look at what's been happening in the major stock markets and indeed with the companies on them this week. You're going to start with markets, I think. Yeah, I mean, let's start with the US then. Biden is basically on course to fulfill his his promise of tackling the pandemic much more competently, I think, than the Trump administration. Um, And today, you know, we're recording on Thursday, set to unveil what they think will be a, a trillion and a half dollar stimulus package, which will include Things like a $1,400 stimulus check, partnering with private firms to get that vaccine out as quickly as possible, um, and also focusing some extra resources on minority communities. So the markets are liking this. It's a much larger stimulus package than what was originally agreed. And this is a result of the Democrats taking the Senate in the Georgia runoff. Um, I think, you know, one thing is Biden's hoping these aren't going to, you know, the new impeachment proceedings that we're seeing with with Trump is not going to get in the way of, of passing this this package in his first days as president. You know, this pandemic has already killed 380,000 people in the US. Um, aside from that, also in the US, there's uh, reports in Reuters and the Wall Street Journal that the Trump administration is also scrapping plans to blacklist a number of Chinese firms from US investment. Um, this was an executive order that Trump had signed in November in an attempt to stop American dollars funding companies with links to the Chinese military. So this is good news. Market participants are liking this as it could have you know, affected uh, up to a trillion dollars worth of, of investments there. Um, adding to these two things, I think, is some positive economic data as well um, that we're seeing around the globe. In Germany, we saw that the economy shrank by less than expected in 2020 by about 5% with data releases. Um, In China, exports rose higher than expected in December. And also in Japan, we saw machinery orders rise for a second month in a row. So it's all pointing to an economic recovery in the making. I think one thing to watch will be what happens with Italy. We saw um, a coalition partner and the former PM, Matteo Renzi, pull his party out of that coalition. So it's catapulted them into another political crisis there. Uh, which markets are not loving. All in all, the S&P 500 is up 45 points to 3,809. The FTSE is down 70 points to 6,794. And the European stock 600 is flat at around 411 points. Simon, what's going on in companies? Uh, Well, this week, uh, investment manager Vanguard uh, has announced that the amount of money that it invests on behalf of its customers went up by $186 billion last year. That's about 
and £34 billion. Uh, that means that the total of the value of the investments it looks after has, for the first time ever, exceeded $7 trillion. Now, that puts the company in second place after BlackRock, who are the world's biggest fund management company. Now, Vanguard is a pretty recent uh, phenomenon. It only launched in 1975. It was founded by an American investor, Jack Bogle, and since then, they've taken on 30 million customers. It's made its name by offering low-cost exchange-traded funds, ETFs we often call them. They simply just track markets rather than trying to beat them. And last year, $210 billion went into their ETF business, which is about a quarter of the total marketplace. Also, following news last week that Sainsbury's and Morrison's here in the UK have both seen increased sales in the run-up to Christmas, Tesco came out this week and said that it had record sales over the period as people were spoiling themselves with a range of their luxury products. In the UK, like-for-like sales for Tesco were up 8% in the six weeks to the 9th of January. And the supermarket saw a 14% jump in demand for its Tesco finest range, which is their luxury food range. Uh, it also said that vegan Christmas alternatives were up. And Ken Murphy, the company's CEO, said they delivered 7 million orders with 400 million individual items in them over the Christmas period. Now, a lot of that was being driven by the internet. Online sales were up 80% in the 19 weeks leading up to the 9th of January, and that's nearly a billion dollars in extra sales. Their share price this year is up 10%. Okay, well, that's uh, it for companies and markets. Uh, on to the rest of the show. Now, this week, we're going to look into the future again, as we did last week, but take a much longer time horizon and look at what themes, what investment ideas might be useful in the longer term. Uh, Marcus, where do we start? Yeah, um, well, this is it exactly. You know, we're thinking about goals that are a bit further out, things like, you know, maybe for your pension. Um, and I think this is where the juicy returns begin because it enables you to take much more risk, you know, in, in the assets that are riskier, like shares or private equity, things like that. Um, but also, as you mentioned, tap into some of the big, world-changing innovations that we see around us that can be a source of strong long-term returns in the companies where they're manifested. Now, fund managers will seek out these particular investments as trends, which they call investment themes. A good example is clean energy, investing in renewable sources of fuel. Um, and themes are useful because the fund manager then can identify a set of companies that are all pivoted around this particular theme, this particular innovation. Um, and it's useful to us because as investors, if we like a particular theme, like clean energy, then we can find fund managers who agrees and invest in those themes in their funds. Um, and I think not only are these themes a source of long-term returns, not only do they drive returns over many years, they also have been accelerated. Certain themes have been accelerated by the pandemic. It's actually poured fuel onto these. Um, so I think that it makes it a particularly interesting time to look a decade out and think about some of these themes, some of these long-term 
drivers of return. So we're going to do that. We're going to talk about three in particular within company shares. Um, and then I'm going to get Simon to talk through some funds um, uh, of fund managers who invest in those themes. Yeah, I am poised, ready to do so. Um, where, do you, where do you want to start? Yes, yeah, so, well, let's start with technology. Uh, it's an easy one, this. I mean, it's been a big winner for over a decade. And, um, and many people think that it would continue for many more decades. I think that's quite understandable. Um, and that's because there are many sub-themes within technology. You're not just talking about technology in general. To give you a bit of a flavour, um, let's have a look at three of them. The first is the ability of mega-tech firms to continue to grow even bigger due to their economies of scale and how deeply entrenched they are in their markets. And actually, there's a good example here in digital advertising. So if you look at digital advertising, let's go back to 2007, according to some data from Capital Group, the two top firms in global digital advertising had 4% of the advertising market. And by 20, 2019, the top two had 37% combined. So you can see how these top players just started gobbling up market share all the time. Simon, what do you reckon those top two are? Um, good question. I would imagine social media is probably high up there, so I would say either Facebook or Twitter. Good. Um, and um, something something search-related? Yes, Facebook and Alphabet, so Google effectively. Ah. Yeah, they're the two, top two, 37%. Of the revenues, so they're just they're just they're just taking more and more, and and it looks like that's set to continue because you know the more users you have, the more global you are, more markets, more relevant ads you can supply, you can do it more efficiently, cheaper, you know, campaigns um, than anyone else could could offer, um, and it's all protected by these big what they call economic moats by your massive scale and the fact that you have this very very powerful network effect. So I don't think that one is going to go away. Um, so there's a good example. Another one is cloud computing. You know, this is an 11, um, sorry, $111 billion industry. And um, quite recently, Satya Nadella, he's the CEO of Microsoft, came out. And he said that during the pandemic, they saw two years of growth in their cloud services in just two months. And it's again, it's all about scale. You know, the big three are Microsoft, but also Amazon and um, Alphabet. And, you know, their cloud services just, you know, once you've got, you have to build enormous amounts to get to scale and be profitable. But then it becomes very, very profitable after that. And they're just the entrenched winners. And again, size there will enable that theme to continue to be a really a really good one is more and more people switch from having localized sources of computing power to having it just kept elsewhere. Um, so, you know, you can see that as a big theme. I think one of the other big ones is the rollout of 5G, uh, the super fast connectivity that I'm sure everyone's heard about in the news, um, especially after the politicization over Huawei's role out of 5G in the UK and the fact that the Americans got involved and were very upset about, about that idea. Um, that aside, it's going to be transformational. You know, basically with 4G, a high def film would have taken about 15 minutes to download. With 5G, it would take three minutes. So it's super fast and it's low latency. So it and it, so it goes beyond. I mean, the, the benefits of that go way beyond just, 
you know, getting a film, a really cool film really quick. This is about a whole range of businesses that, that could that could come off the back of this from the internet of things, from industrial applications, you know, think of autonomous driving, you know, Tesla's share price is sky high for a reason because they're looking forward into the future as, as electric vehicles as a pure play here. Um, think of incredibly immersive augmented and virtual reality. Think about how AI is going to be able to connect um, uh, to to all sorts of things and create highly connected smart cities, um, for example, that are a lot more efficient. Um, think about combine harvesters just wandering off on their own and, and plowing those fields. Um, it's enormous, the potential. In fact, there was an IHS market study that reckoned that this industry would eventually grow to the tune of $13.2 trillion, which is absolutely enormous in terms of economic value. Um, so its applications are very, very widespread. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, you can see how this is, is, is one of those, these themes are, are you know, going to drive the profits of the businesses that are, you know, involved in, the, in, these, in, these, um, in these innovations for many years to come. Simon, what have you got for us in the whole technology space then? Yeah, indeed. I mean, the question obviously on, on 5G is when. It seems to have been, you know, trailed forever, but it does seem closer to happening um, than it than it ever has, I suppose. Um, well, in, in terms of uh, stock picks or fund picks, as it, as it were, um, I've, I've got two actually that are both investment trusts um, and uh, are both in exactly the space you've been talking about. So the first is Polar Capital Technology Trust, as the name implies, as I, as I said, it's an investment trust. It was launched way back in 1996, and it had the aim of increasing the value of your money. So, in other words, capital growth uh, through investment, and these are their words, not mine, in a broadly diversified international portfolio of technology stocks around the world. So, uh, it is the biggest investment trust in the Association of Investment Companies Technology and Media sector. That's just a grouping of similar investments. It's $3.4 billion in uh, billion pounds, should I say, in size, and it has been managed by uh, the same chap, Ben Rogoff, since 2006. Now, to give you an example of the kinds of companies that they invest in, 70% of the portfolio is American companies, no surprise there. And look, look at the names, uh, Facebook, Alphabet, so Google, uh, Microsoft, Apple, they're all in the in the top 10. But there are also holdings outside the US. So in Asia, the big companies there, Alibaba, Tencent, Samsung. Uh, so, you know, uh, some of the biggest technology uh, companies in, in, on the planet. And over the last 10 years, if you'd had £100 invested in the trust, it'd have grown to £507. The second biggest trust in the sector, in the technology sector, is Allianz Technology Trust. Uh, now, oddly enough, uh, no surprise, again, it holds lots of US tech stocks, Alphabet, Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, but also Tesla, uh, Twilio, and the company Paycom Software. Now, its portfolio is about two-thirds technology-focused at the moment. The rest is, is made up of communication services and consumer companies, and get this, if you'd invested £100 10 years ago, it would now be worth a printed sum of £814. 
So the next one I wanted to have a chat about is healthcare. Um, I think we're seeing a bit of a, a renaissance in healthcare, a lot of a lot of innovation, and it's certainly been um, something that has been brought into sharp focus because of COVID. You know, we're all quite aware of our of our health and outcomes, and also not being able to access doctors and, and normal medical care that we get that is that has brought this into focus. And it's an enormous industry. The World Health Organization reckons it's about $8 trillion is spent on healthcare globally. That's about 10% of GDP. And as it stands, it's still quite inefficient um, because of things like, you know, poor pricing on drugs or, or the you know, poor coordination between treatments or overly complex treatments. There's lots of inefficiencies in the system um, which some estimates are, you know, it's about two trillion of that eight trillion um, is is wasted. So there's a lot of efficiencies that could be driven into the system, um, and then on top of that, innovations that could just improve outcomes for us as human beings. Um, you look at things like telemedicine. You know, it's exploded since the onset of the pandemic, and um, that is basically, you know speaking to a patient remotely um, and diagnosing them remotely and that could be transformative because suddenly is rather than only going to the doctors when you really really need to when you've got symptoms of something which is often a sign of something that's progressed um, is is going to be switched towards a much more lifelong monitoring so that anything that surfaces can be nipped in the bud quickly and you can basically be kept an eye on much more effectively. So it's a big area of growth. I reckon by some measures, about 26% per year, this industry will grow, you know, for the next six years at least. So that's a really interesting one. Treatments as well. I mean, we've just seen a transformation in treatments. It seems the years of the, the days of the blockbusters are kind of gone. It's now about much more targeted treatments and the way in which you find those treatments that's supported by technology. Um, and areas, you know, gene editing, uh, genetic kind of therapies, um, things like 3D bioprinting, um, uh, all enabled by, by 5G as well. You know, we can, we can suddenly, the concept of robotic surgery, and we saw the first of, of that in a report last year, um, where you could have an expert that is on another continent um, but because of technology they can they can still do that that surgery through robotics so I think those you know that is a that is a that's a really interesting um, uh, area um, and it could be transformative in in cancer treatments in particular as well um, uh, you know in China th there there's a lot of work being done in cancer treatments um, one in two patients who have cancer are in some form of a drug trial, um, which is remarkable when you consider that in the US it's one in 20. Um, so that's going to be transformative there. And combined with that is also another area of growth, advanced diagnostics. Um, and that can really help in the fight against cancer, early detection. You know, they, they think these things combined, actually, we could see the basically the cure for cancer in a decade or, or a bit more. 
um, because early detection is a, is is a is a big part of it. You know, cancer is like it's like the bull in the china shop. You know, stop the bull before it gets into the china shop, rather than dealing with a mess afterwards. And if you can find cancer very very early on, then treatments that can be can be very very effective. And the big innovation here is liquid biopsy. So rather than having to have an operation where a surgeon goes in and they take a little piece of, of, of a cancerous tumour that's been found in order to, to, to um, uh, detect, detect it and, and, and find cancer in that way, it is, it is through the blood. You know, it's, it's, it's been able to detect these things um, uh, without invasive surgery. So that's, you know, that's one area. So those things combined, I think what we see is, is a good case there. Simon, what have you got in the healthcare sector? So I've been looking again at the AIC uh, sector listings. So they do have a sector for uh, for health. Um, uh, there's eight investment trusts in that uh, in that sector, and I've gone for the biggest in the sector just as an example. That's the Worldwide Healthcare Trust. It's managed by a company called Frostro Capital, two point four billion. Uh, pounds in size and it, in its own words its aim is to achieve a high level of capital growth so growing the value of your money by investing worldwide in a diversified portfolio of shares in pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies uh, so what does that mean in practice well a lot of these names I confess I hadn't really heard of uh, but in the top 10 there are Bristol Myers Squibb, Alexian, uh, Merck and Mirati Therapeutics uh, over the last 10 years, again, uh, your mythical £100 invested, that would now be worth £512. Although, interestingly, the best performing trust in the sector currently is also run by Frostro, and that's the Biotech Growth Trust. And it's doing a similar sort of thing, really. There, £100 invested in 2011 would now be worth a healthy £846. So, um, Finally, then, the, the, the last theme, uh, and you touched on this earlier, is clean energy. What, what, what does it really mean? Yeah, so clean energy is referring to using more renewable sources of energy rather than the all-polluting fossil fuels, um, which just kick lots of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and warm our planet to, to devastating effects. Um, so by renewable sources, we mean by using things like um, solar power or tidal power or wind power or rain power or whatever it is. There's plenty of sources out there with loads and loads of energy. I mean, the sun um, is a never-ending source of it if we just harness it better. So it's about building that infrastructure that enables us to capture that energy and, and then um, transport it, store it and use it. Um, and it's probably one of those themes that was accelerated by 2020 a little bit. I think people feel a little bit more connected to their physical environments than they did before, having been forced to take note of it to the point of boredom, no doubt. Um, and it's created a bit of a watershed moment. I think the EU were already well on their way to, to pledging for carbon neutrality by 2050, but jumped on board. Have, uh, Japan have jumped on board with that as well. Um, by 2050, they said they'll be carbon neutral. And China as well has said by 2060, they'll be carbon neutral, which is a big pledge from, from one of the biggest polluters. Um, 
So, um, uh, you know, that that's interesting. And I think there are four areas that uh, they could focus on that are responsible for, for quite a lot of, of carbon dioxide emission, um, 79% in these four areas. And that is general power generation to our homes, industrial applications of, of power, ones that use gas that could be replaced by renewable uh, what we use in our cars, so electric vehicles instead of fossil fuel powered ones. And then the fourth area is using digital to make the use of, of energy just a lot more efficient. And if we, we really tackle those four areas, then, then that would be that would be 79%. So it would be a good way um, to tackling the crisis. Um, Simon, what have you got in this area? Um, well, for clean, green, that's hard to say, clean, green energy, uh, the AIC, again, has just the ticket. It has a sector called the Renewable Energy Infrastructure Sector. There are 16, actually, uh, investment trusts in that sector. But because it's all kind of relatively new, uh, none of those investment trusts are over 10 years old. And in fact, only six of the 16 have been around for more than five years. Now, of those six, the best performing has been the Bluefield Solar Income Fund. So it's aiming to provide its shareholders with an attractive return, it says, principally in the form of quarterly income, uh, so quarterly dividends, and, and that's by being invested primarily in solar energy assets in the UK. Now, it launched back in 2013. It's 457 million uh, pounds in size, and that's spread across 105 solar photovoltaic projects. That's also hard to say, but I got it right. Um, now, those projects are uh, 64 large-scale sites, 39 micro-sites, and they also have two rooftop sites. They're all in the UK, so England, Wales, and Scotland. Now, this is different from the other investments we talked about already today because its aim is not to grow the value of your money per se, but to pay out an income and, of course, you could use that income to pay your expenses or you could use it to reinvest it and buy more shares in the investment. It has a target income yield of 8%. In other words, if you had £100 invested, you'd receive £8 a year in income. Uh, it's currently a little bit behind target, though, at 5.82%. Interesting. I think probably the, the thing to mention as well, though, is also we have to balance this argument with a bit of risks. And... Um, you know, don't forget there are risks, even with the long term um, horizon, time horizon. You know, what we're talking about here is company shares. So that's, you know, you've got stock market risk, you've got equity market risk there. Um, uh, you know, so depending on when you want your money out, it could be down or up um, and things can happen. The other thing is that this is very much a, a bias towards, you know, growth companies and um we have discussed that in the more near term, what we're seeing is is there's there's probably quite a lot of opportunity in more value type companies. Um, growth companies have performed very well for for a while, and they've outperformed value for for a long while. So you know there could be a question if you believe that things go back to a mean that they revert to an average. That yeah, you know, it could be time for for value to outperform for a long time. And for these types of growth stocks not to do so well. I think when you look at what we you know, describe as those fundamentals, the reasons behind why these business models should do well, 
that negates, I think, the the idea that th that these should underperform. Um, but you never know. Um, the other thing is sector sector specific. You know, we're talking about quite specific areas of innovation here, um, and and they're open, especially when you've got support from governments to the flip side of that. And you know, especially if there's issues between the U.S. and China. Um, you never know; these things could be be knocked off course, and governments could change, and the political will to fund these sorts of projects could wane. So, so there is a political risk as well associated with these things. But I think they do present a strong case in in the long term. Okay, I mean, I think the other thing, probably just finally to say, is that you know the numbers we've given there for yields and returns, they're all past performance numbers. So things that have happened in the past, there's no guarantee that they will continue to happen like that in the future. Okay, well, that is it for this week. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We hope you found it uh, both useful and enjoyable. I know I did. Um, join us again next week when we look at investing for your children. And Joining us on the show will be independent financial advisor Felix Milton. Until then, stay safe and goodbye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.